Hey, Rounds Table listeners, we have an exciting opportunity for you to take a seat at the table. The Rounds Table is looking to diversify and expand our team of co-hosts. We are looking for individuals who are interested in becoming a regular co-host and who want to take on a leadership role at the Rounds Table. Interested applicants should have strong skills in critical appraisal of evidence-based medicine. The Rounds Table has been downloaded over 200,000 times from a total of 138 countries worldwide. So we're looking for great people to help us continue to build this exciting platform. There is a lot of exciting work going on at the Rounds Table and we would love for you to be a part of it. If you're interested, please contact myself with a simple expression of interest at kieran.quinn at mail.utoronto.ca. That's K-I-E-R-A-N dot Q-U-I-N-N at mail.utoronto.ca. The deadline for applications is the end of March. We look forward to hearing from you. Now on with the show. This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for joining us for another exciting week on the show. We have a favorite returning guest of ours from last year. It's Dr. Lauren Lacroix, who is a resident in emergency medicine at the University of Ottawa. She also has her fellowship in resuscitation from Queen's University. Lauren, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back, Karen. I'm happy to be here. So, Lauren, what do you have for us this week on the rounds table? Well, considering last time it went over so well, I thought that we would uh, dive back into the management of pulmonary embolism. Uh, so today I thought we'd talk about the YEARS study. Ah, you're referring to our enlightened and ballyhoo discussion of the PESIT trial last year, which has garnered a lot of attention and you wanted to try for it again with the YEARS trial. Is that about it? That's about it. I'm essentially hoping to discourage people from getting as many CTs as they want with the results of the PESIT trial uh, and trying to bring that down through this discussion. So that is a perfect segue into the bottom line for this article. Lauren, what is the main message? Uh, so in this year study, so the full title is the Simplified Diagnostic Management of Suspected Pulmonary Embolism. Uh, it's a prospective multi-center cohort study of almost 3,500 consecutive patients who had suspected PE. And they found that the year's diagnostic algorithm safely excluded PE and decreased the number of CT pulmonary angiograms by 14%. So you mentioned that part of the rationale, your interest in this was regarding decreasing the rates of CT pulmonary angiograms. Frame that for us in the context of what we know about rates of CTPA uh, over time. Well, specifically for where I work in the emergency department, diagnosing PEs represents a diagnostic challenge for us. And these patients present with all kinds of symptoms, whether it's chest pain or shortness of breath or syncope, as evidenced by the PESIT trial. And for that reason, we end up using decision instruments like the PERC rule or the WELL score in order to risk stratify our patients into lower high risk. And unfortunately, we don't have a perfect test outside of CTs, and even they have their limitations. But the one that most people are aware of is the use of the D-dimer. And unfortunately, there are several limitations to two D-dimers. So rates of CTPAs are quite high. And we all know about the risks of CTs. There's increased radiation exposure. Um, it also increases patients' length of stays in the emergency department. And there's also been some discussion over overdiagnosis. So what the utility of diagnosing these subsegmental PEs is. We don't really know the clinical significance of that. So more people are potentially receiving unnecessary anticoagulation. Okay. Well, it sounds like an important question to answer. And hopefully the year's approach results in a safe but reduced rate of CT pulmonary angiogram. 
although I'm not sure if that's their primary outcome. So let's find out. What was the design of the study, Lorna? Where did it take place? So this study took place in 12 hospitals in the Netherlands. And as I mentioned, it was a prospective multi-center cohort study. And who were the patients that they included in the study? So included patients were outpatients and inpatients who were greater than 18 years of age who had a clinically suspected acute PE. They excluded anyone who had received therapeutic doses of anticoagulation in the preceding 24 hours, anyone who had a life expectancy of less than three months, pregnant patients, and anyone who had an allergy to IV contrast. And so this is a cohort study. What was the exposure that they were looking at to predict pulmonary embolism? So they were looking at the application of the YEARS algorithm. So they took three elements from the WELLS score. So specifically, any clinical signs of deep vein thrombosis, uh, hemoptysis, or PE as the most likely diagnosis. And these three items were chosen from the original WELLS decision rule because they were found to be the most predictive for pulmonary embolism. If you had any one of these items, the patient's D-dimer threshold was 500 nanograms per milliliter, so our usual standard D-dimer. But if you didn't have any of these items, the D-dimer threshold that they used was 1,000. So essentially, you're using these three critically important components of the Wells criteria to determine your pretest probability, and you're adjusting your D-dimer cutoffs to proceed with CT pulmonary angiogram accordingly? Yeah, essentially. They chose the elements of the well score that performed the best uh, in some post-hoc analyses and tried to change the D-dimer thresholds accordingly. Okay. And so what was the primary outcome that they were measuring in with the application of this algorithm? So the study's primary outcome was the three-month incidence of symptomatic venous thromboembolism. And this was measured three months uh, at a follow-up, either a scheduled outpatient visit or by telephone interview. Now, interestingly, they also looked at the proportion of required CTPA scans using both the year's algorithm and then comparing that with the well score calculated post hoc. And another interesting thing in the diagnosis of PE that came of age after this study was designed was the use of age-adjusted D-dimers. So they added that in as a third comparison as to whether the year's algorithm decreased the rates of CTPAs compared with that group as well. So the primary purpose of this study is a clinical prediction rule to help you with your diagnostic algorithm for pulmonary embolism above and beyond the Wells score or the other existing uh, rules, Lauren? Yeah, so it's comparing it to the Wells score. It was a validation study to see if it was safe. And then the secondary outcome was looking at rates of CT scans. Okay, so what uh, were the main findings of the study then? So they looked at just about 3,500 patients and it diagnosed 13% of these patients with PE. In patients who had no factors of the year's algorithm, the incidence was about 3%. And those who had one or more of the year's criteria, incidence was 23%. Now, 85% of the patients who presented had PE ruled out. So they did not pass go, they did not receive any radiation, and they went on their way. Of all the patients enrolled, 18 patients were diagnosed with symptomatic venous thromboembolism. So that's an incidence of 0.61%, less than 1%. And seven of these were initially managed without having a CT scan. And how did these people present symptomatically? They weren't, you know, you said they were inpatients and emergency department patients, but what were their reasons for presentation? Did they describe those in the study? So they didn't describe every single patient's presentation. It was all based on the physician's 
estimation of suspected pulmonary embolism. 86% of the patients were outpatient, so presenting in the emergency department, but 14% of them were inpatients, as you mentioned. Okay, so a little bit of a question mark in my mind there about the utility or the population in which to apply this clinical prediction rule, especially given the fact that you said the actual event rate was only was less than 1%, which we know is well below the estimated prevalence of pulmonary embolism in the population. So pulmonary embolism was ruled out in 85% of the patients who presented. When they were followed up at three months, only 18 patients were diagnosed with symptomatic venous thromboembolism, whether it's DVT or PE, which is an incidence of 0.61%. So that's less than 1% of people who were who went on to be diagnosed with DVT or PE at the three-month mark. I see. So what you're saying here, Lauren, is that the year's uh, algorithm is pretty darn good at uh, not missing individuals with pulmonary embolism. It was pretty excellent. And of those 13% who ultimately did have a pulmonary embolism, what did those PEs look like? Did they characterize the sort of thrombotic burden or the symptoms that were associated with them? Uh, so I didn't see a breakdown of whether they were segmental or subsegmental PEs or what the clinical significance was. No. Okay. So any interesting uh, secondary outcomes you wanted to talk about? Yeah. So the really interesting part was that their secondary outcome looking at the rates of CTPA scans. So they found an absolute reduction in CTPAs in using the year's algorithm. When they first compared it to the Wells score with a traditional D-dimer cutoff of less than 500, the absolute reduction in CTs was 14%. Wow. That's, a, that's quite an impressive reduction. Yeah. And so that's 14% less exposure to radiation and IV contrast and people who didn't have unnecessary scans. Now, when they went back and looked at your age-adjusted D-dimer scores, so that's your age times 10, using that as the cutoff for your D-dimer, the absolute reduction in CTPAs was still about 8%. So it's even in light of our new world of adjusting D-dimers for age, it still seems to perform pretty well. Any, I mean, these cohort studies are usually susceptible to a variety of different limitations. What things were you considering when you read this trial with regards to any any limitations? So the one major limitation that I have to bring up and that limits my application of this study is that the clinicians who were working these patients up for suspected pulmonary embolism actually had access to the D-dimer results before assessing the year's items. So the D-dimer was drawn off at triage before these patients were assessed by a physician, and the physicians had access to that information before assigning their year's criteria. And so this might have biased the decision of whether or not to work up a patient for PE, but importantly, it definitely affects that clinical gestalt aspect of both the Wells score and the year's algorithm, where you're asking physicians, is pulmonary embolism the most likely diagnosis? So I definitely think that that is a big question mark for me and a limitation of this study. Yeah, there's definitely room to have that result influence you and influence your sort of decision-making or your gestalt, as you said. I think that's a very excellent point. Any any other observations or points you wanted to highlight? Uh, one other point that I just wanted to bring up that, again, affects the generalizability for my patient population is that they had a relatively small number of patients with malignancies or cancer patients. And now knowing the burden of disease in that patient population, it's hard to know whether or not this 
study or this algorithm could be applied to those patients. And the authors do bring that up in their discussion. Yeah. And, and you know, I think for me, regarding the use of those D-dimer thresholds, I mean, we all know how nonspecific D-dimer is with regards to elevations in its in its cutoffs. So, for example, tons of patients I see in the internal medicine unit have elevated D-dimers, those with cancer, those with heart failure, those with a variety of other conditions. Um, and so I don't know about the utility, especially in this study where 80% of the patients were emergency department patients on applying this year's algorithm to to the patients that I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it uh, definitely needs to be externally validated before it's ready for prime time. So tell me, Lauren, what does the typical patient in this study look like? So the majority of patients included in this study were outpatients, as we mentioned, so 86%. They had a mean age of 53, and only 10% had had a previous DBT or PE. And we also mentioned that about 10% had malignancy, which is quite low when you consider uh, rates of PEs in that patient population. All right. So wrap it up for us. What are the main learning points you want listeners to take away from this year's study? So I think the main learning points is that the year's algorithm is simple. It appears to be safe. And very importantly, comes with an absolute reduction in CTPA rates of 14%, uh, which is definitely clinically significant. Unfortunately, until there can be external validation of the study, specifically for me in an emergency department setting, I'm gonna continue to risk stratify my patients who are presenting with a suspected PE by applying the PERC criteria and using the WELL score to identify which patients need a D-dimer. Well, I guess we'll just have to watch with bated breath in the years to come for what holds with this clinical prediction rule and whether it will top the Wells criteria or other popular risk stratification tools. Thank you for that, Lauren. Let's move on to the article that I chose for this week, which looks at the interval of blood donation in the UK uh, that was uh, published by Angela Antonio in The Lancet in September of 2017. Sounds very interesting. Uh, Why don't we start off with the bottom line? So what's the main message of this article? Well, Lauren, this was a randomized control trial of over 45,000 whole blood donors. And it found that increasing the frequency of blood donation above and beyond standard practice in the United Kingdom was able to collect substantially more blood without having a major effect on donors' quality of life, physical activity, cognitive function. But it did result in more donation-related symptoms, uh, donation uh, deferrals, and uh, iron deficiency. That's pretty interesting. As a blood donor myself, that's an interesting interval to look at. Um, Why did you choose this article? Well, in Canada, as our Canadian Blood Services says, or used to say at least as our main slogan, blood, it's in you to give. And that's certainly true. There's 110 million annual donations worldwide. Yet, despite more than a century of blood donation, the efficiency and safety of different approaches to different blood collection strategies have not been properly evaluated. I remember when I was a lab student uh, collecting blood on my own self to isolate cells, and you used to get paid 10 or 25 bucks to do it. I would isolate blood as frequently as possible as a starving graduate student until my supervisor found out and said, that may not be the safest approach, and certainly you can't do that, so stop. But more importantly, you know, the supply chain in blood donation and uh, the use in hospitals and elsewhere is an issue. Um, And this may become worse as the population ages and young donors are less engaged in donation. So determining an optimal frequency, so to speak, 
to maximize your blood returns without affecting donors would be important. And that's what this study sought to answer. That is really important considering the uh, amount of blood products that I can remember giving in the last month alone. I think that it's a really important thing to look at. So let's get into methods. So uh, what was the design of this study? So this was a parallel group, pragmatic, randomized trial. So we just sort of try to do things as openly as possible and as clued as wide an audience as you can. From 25 centers across England and the United Kingdom, conducted between 2012 and 2014. Great. And who were the patients? So being a pragmatic style, very broad inclusion criteria. Eligible donors needed to be an adult age 18 years or older, fulfilled routine criteria for donation, had an email address, and had access to the internet to be able to respond to web-based questionnaires. Then they did hemoglobin screening as part of the routine criteria for donation, two separate methods, and required a hemoglobin greater than 135 in men or greater than 125 in women. And you could donate on a different day if on your day of planned donation, you did not meet criteria for donation. You were able to come back in a little while later to see if you were eligible at that point. And so what was the intervention that differentiated these two groups? So a little bit of background to help frame that. In the UK, the current practice is to allow men to donate every 12 weeks, women every 16 weeks. Now, this is contrasted to the United States, where women, men and women can donate every eight weeks. But it's quite variable. In France and Germany, men can donate every eight weeks and women every 12 weeks. And the Canadian Blood Services has recently lengthened their interdonation interval for women from eight weeks to 12 weeks. So you see a lot of variation across different countries in the safety uh, of blood donation intervals. <clears throat> now, in this particular trial, men were randomly assigned to the 12 week, that's the standard UK interval uh, and compared to 10 weeks and 8 weeks and the women who were by standard uh, interval of a 16 week blood donation timing were compared to 14 week and 12 week uh, groups they took one unit of blood per donation that's 470 milliliters of blood and then individuals in all groups were reminded by email text and phone to donate on their assigned schedule and as uh, you probably already guessed, blinding was not possible, nor would it really be able to be done given the, the time intervals as the primary intervention. But the donor screening technicians who measured hemoglobin and determined eligibility for donation, as well as the outcome assessors, were blinded. So they tried to maximize their validity by doing this. I'm pretty surprised that there is such variation between countries and internationally about how much time between blood donations. Uh, so hopefully they can come to a conclusion with this study. I think so, yeah. You know, we, we heard that there, despite a whole, over 100 years of blood donation, we, we haven't really evaluated uh, blood donation intervals. So I think that's probably why you see such variation. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the primary outcome? So the primary outcome measure was the number of donations over two years per individual. Um, and then important secondary outcomes, they looked at some safety uh, assessments. That was the quality of life through the SF36 questionnaire. They asked questions potentially related to donation, things like fatigue and shortness of breath. They asked about physical activity, cognitive function. They measured hemoglobin and ferritin concentrations. And they measured the number of deferrals uh, due to low hemoglobin at the time of uh, screening for donation. That sounds pretty rigorous. They must have had a very committed group of, of patients being studied. Uh, so let's talk about results. What were the main findings of the study? 
So you had just over 45,000 participants in the trial. 8% uh, of them were brand new donors, had not donated before. An average of four to seven units of blood were drawn per individual over the two-year time frame. And getting to their primary outcome in men, compared with the 12-week group, the mean amount of blood collected per donor over two years increased significantly by about 1.7 units in the eight-week group. That's a 33% increase. And by 0.8 units in the 10-week group. So in other words, obviously you're going to collect more blood if you draw more frequently, but it also tells you that there were not a lot of deferrals for blood draws in the more frequent groups. Similarly, if you look at the women, with a 16-week group, group, blood units increased by 0.84. In the 12-week group, uh, which is a 24% increase, um, and 0.46 units in the 14-week uh, group. Wow, that's a pretty significant amount of blood. That's great. Did you have any interesting points that you wanted to make or anything that caught your eye as you were going through it? Yeah, so first I'll just talk about some of the secondary outcomes. Really briefly, there were no differences in any of the quality of life, physical activity, or cognitive function assessments across the randomized groups. But they did see that more frequent donation resulted in more donation-related symptoms like tiredness, breathlessness, feeling faint, dizziness, restless legs, etc. And for some reason, men seemed to be particularly susceptible to reporting these symptoms. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> no comment. Uh, but they did back this up with objective findings of low ferritin, although I must say that the ferritin levels were never less than 20, which would be true iron deficiency. But they came pretty close. They were about 25, so they were not far off and probably were some, these are definitely low iron levels. And those were seen in the men who donated more frequently uh, at 8 and 10 weeks. They talked about lower hemoglobin levels, but none of them were less than 130 ever, so that wasn't really significant. But they, as I, they did see some degree of deferrals uh, for low hemoglobin by about 2.5% in the more frequent blood draw groups compared to the less frequent blood draw groups. I wonder why there would be such a big difference between the sexes and all joking aside. I wonder if there's a difference in the hemoglobin levels or if it's related to menstruation. Yeah, possibly. I mean, the honest answer is I don't know, but perhaps men are more sensitive to changes in iron concentrations because they don't have monthly cycles. And this probably requires somebody smarter in hematology than me or transfusion medicine. Uh, but the other thing, Lauren, I'd like to, to point out, I mean, the recruitment was interesting. This is just sort of a side point. But you had 95,000 donors recruited initially, and then 53,000 were excluded due to a lack of interest, or they didn't have email, or they were less than 18. But then after the trial was underway, you had an additional 11,000 joined without active recruitment. They just kind of heard about it from their friends or whatever and said, I want in. So that was kind of neat. We don't often see clinical trials where people are actively asking to participate. Wow, that's power and viral marketing. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I guess would be important to point out, and this is kind of related to our discussion around reported symptoms uh, related to donation, the unblinding nature of this trial certainly could account for some of those reported symptoms. So, you know, if you were donating more often and you knew that, then you might be more likely to report that you felt faint or fatigued or dizzy because you knew your blood was being drawn more often. That's a pretty hard one to blind, though. So unless you're doing sham draws. <laughs> Yeah, not 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 uh, not a major criticism per se, just uh, an explanation to help uh, account for some of those f potential findings. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that's really interesting. Any other limitations that we haven't talked about? One other thing to mention that the authors discussed, uh, in, in looking through some of the subgroup analyses that they had predefined, there seemed to be, you got even more gains in your blood collection um, if you focused on frequent donation in individuals with higher than average weight or higher than average initial hemoglobin or ferritin concentrations. So kind of an interesting strategy that you could target particular individuals um, and potentially even draw blood from them more frequently to gain a higher yield of blood. That is really interesting. All right, Kieran. So what are the main learning points of this article? So first, Lauren, over a two-year time period, more frequent donation than is standard practice in the UK collected substantially more blood without having a major effect on many of donors' uh, different aspects of their life. But there might be some more donation-related symptoms and potentially uh, development of iron deficiency, which uh, really, you know, from a policy point of view, is uh, reassuring uh, to help with our blood supply chain. And the other point I guess I would make is iron supplementation could be considered for frequent donors to try to treat this iron deficiency, although this hasn't been substantiated in prior studies that have tried to do this. So maybe some further investigation will be required on how to avoid bleeding our donors out, so to speak. Yeah, from a policy perspective, I can't see that it would be very cost effective to have a blood donation chased with IV iron or something like that. Um, so that's an interesting point to make. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, but who knows? We'll see what happens. Uh, either way, I think it's an important uh, trial for a vitally important product that only we are able to make naturally at, at the current time. Well, Lauren, that was a great discussion of two great articles for the week. Let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the Good Stuff segment, where we're talking about what we're reading about. Lauren, what's catching your eye in the medical literature this week? So the interesting story that I wanted to talk about this week, um, coming off of the Invictus Games in Toronto and the great success that the city had with that, um, there's a story that I read on CBC about how uh, prosthetic legs have revolutionized uh, the way that amputees can play sports. And uh, there's a story of Etienne Bay. So he uh, is a gentleman who was hit by an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan in 2009. Uh, and he has this revolutionary new prosthetic leg. Uh, it actually has a microprocessor and gyroscopes that help to situate it and calculate the speed of weight transfer between his legs. Uh, and he went on to win a silver medal uh, in golf at the Invictus Games this last month. Uh, so I just thought it was a really cool way that science and technology can uh, have an impact, such a big impact on people's lives. Amazing. Well, I read about something entirely different, but hopefully equally as interesting. It's a technique known as coronary CT angiography, which is the latest and greatest in cardiovascular prevention, or so, or they, so we hope. And it's really a, a new technique that is evolving in the detection of clinically significant cardiovascular disease before your plaques rupture and lead to acute coronary syndrome. So, Lauren, the focus for decades has been on narrowing or blockages, but we've learned more and more about plaque biology and plaque behavior, uh, that it's more than merely the degree of narrowing caused by the plaque. In fact, about half of the heart attacks that occur uh, are in arteries that weren't seriously or significantly narrowed by our estimation the day before the heart attack. 
What does that mean? It means that we're really not that good at predicting which plaques will rupture. Enter coronary CT and geography, which looks at the perivascular fat around coronary plaques. Um, because the thinking is that inflamed coronary arteries talk to, in a sense, the fat that surrounds them and send signals that change the lipid composition and water content of these areas. So if you're able to look at those areas and evaluate the spatial changes in fat tissue using CT, you might be able to detect these plaques before they rupture and even those that are not significantly narrowed. That's super interesting. That could have a really big impact on the way that we work patients up for heart disease. The one problem or uh, issue that I foresee with that is if you do see something, you can't do anything about it versus a standard angiogram. True, but it would be more akin to um, other non-invasive risk stratification uh, techniques. So, you know, things like dobutamine stress echoes, MIBIs, or even a treadmill test, uh, this may be able to detect clinically significant lesions as well. And then we would have to figure out how to treat them, uh, whether the stenting those lesions would be an appropriate mechanism to prevent heart attack. Well, thanks for being on the show, Lauren. We always enjoy having you here. And thanks for bringing us the year's study. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to do it anytime. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Mayer, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundtable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us. Thank you.